Our Father, the words that we sing are the truths that our souls long to apprehend more and more. That we are one with you, that we have been forgiven of our sins, that our righteousness resides not in us, but in our Savior, who is at the right hand of the Father. That we cannot die, that we leave this world physically, we never break the fellowship that we have with you. Our life is never broken. The eternal life that we have is forever unchanged, even by the passing from this world to the next. And so we rejoice in this, and we ask that you would help us to have the confidence in these truths that will enable us to live lives more fully dedicated to you. We thank you for your many mercies and your grace to us. We ask you to strengthen not only us, but the church worldwide, the church on earth, universal, your people who are going through various, not only the struggles of this life that are part of living in a sinful world, but those who are needing that extra grace to stand firm when they face real threat for their stance on the gospel. We pray that you would strengthen your people and that your word would go forth. And we pray that it would, so this morning, here in our local congregation, we ask you for grace to do this and to accomplish your work in our hearts, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, today is February, it's the 16th, isn't it? January. That's a bad start, isn't it? Where in the world did I get February from? I don't know. What is today? January 16th. Right, January 16th. So some of you all know that January 16th was a day uh, that was chosen because of a recent uh, law passed in Canada that thousands of pastors, not only in Canada, but also in the United States, uh, obviously, uh, are called to preach on biblical sexuality, to preach on biblical sexuality in light of the onslaught, merely as a cultural force, but becoming more and more a legal force of the LGBTQ movement. And so that's what we are going to do this morning. We have spoken on these things in the past, but we're going to swing around and consider it again uh, this morning. Now to begin, I'd simply like to say this, as you may have noticed, sex and sexuality in one form or another is constantly before our eyes. We are a culture, we are a world obsessed with sex. We define our very nature as persons in terms of our sexuality. And that's because sexuality is so central to our humanity. Being male and female is part and parcel with being made in the image of God. Those are essentially sexual terms. And it's not surprising then that sexuality is one of the first and the deepest expressions of our fallenness as God's image bearers. Now this is evident in many places. You can see it immediately after the fall. The very first thing that Adam and Eve did, who were just described as being naked and unashamed, is they hid themselves. Nothing changed outside of them, but something changed inside of them. And their sexuality, which was a means of joy and unity, became a means of separation and shame. 
But most powerfully, we think of that passage by the Apostle Paul that we'll be reading next week in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And in short, Paul notes there that man in his fallenness has exchanged the truth of God for the lie. There's been an exchange. And the result of this exchange is that man worships and serves the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And the very first expression of being given over to the lust of their hearts to false worship is a distorted sexuality. You remember these words well, Paul says in verses 26 and 27, that women exchange the natural for that function for that which is unnatural. And then men abandon the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire for one another. That was a result of being given over to sin. This open abandonment of God's design for sexuality, inherently obvious in the very structure of nature, is a key identifier of a nation, a people, and a world being abandoned to their sin by God. And as he would say later in chapter 2, in that abandonment, storing up wrath for the day of wrath as long as the heart remains unrepentant. So it's not surprising then that it is this ideology of the sexual revolution in the LGBTQ movement that forms the greatest current attack against the church, against the truth, against the gospel, and against Christ. It is a point on which the church needs to be prepared to speak and to stand with the goal of glorifying God, promoting human flourishing, and holding up Christ crucified and risen for Sinners to be reconciled to God. Now, in order to talk about this, I want to simply organize it under five thoughts. Five thoughts about the conflict between culture and the church regarding sexuality. And they will be, and they are these, the five. One, it's a looming conflict. It's a looming conflict. You could say it's an inevitable conflict. It is a question of authority. Thirdly, it is a spiritual battle. Fourthly, it is a matter of sin and salvation. And fifthly, it is a time to speak. It is a time to speak. So those are the five. It's a looming conflict. It's a question of authority. It's a spiritual battle. It's a matter of sin and salvation. And it's a time to speak. And we'll try to get through all five of these. First, let's notice this. It is a looming conflict. It is a looming or it is an inevitable conflict. It is inevitable that there is going to be a conflict that we've seen brewing on the horizon for many decades, really. You could even argue all the way back, at least in our, in our experience, in the 60s. But certainly in the last several decades, and certainly in the last five years or so, especially, that there is a looming conflict between the all-encompassing ideology of the sexual revolution more specifically the LGBTQ movement and the church and the gospel. Recently, this has come, this attack has come under the banner of conversion therapy. Conversion therapy. We'll spend just a bit of time here just to understand the landscape. Recent laws in the UK and in Canada related to conversion therapy have presented a direct challenge to both biblical sexuality and to free speech. Specifically, the church's right to openly teach and counsel toward biblical sexuality. In a nutshell, as Christians, according to an understanding of Scripture, which has been what the church has held for time immortal, or since its existence, is this. The biblical sexuality is that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Him, male and female, he created them. He then established that marriage 
is a permanent and exclusive covenant union between one man and one woman. And it is the only context in which the sexual differences would be fully expressed and enjoyed as a means of affirming the covenant, filling the earth, and establishing the family as the basic unit of society. That's God's design for sexuality. That's in a nutshell. However, conversion therapy, that is a, as a design, let me say first, that stands directly against the ideology of the sexual revolution. Now, the main attack, as I said, against this understanding of human sexuality is a battle against what is known as conversion therapy. Conversion therapy. Let me first define that. What is conversion therapy? Well, these are in your, the handout was there. I thought it'd be easier than putting it up on the screen. This is the first thing, and this comes directly from the Canadian government website. Conversion therapy, according to them, is described like this. Conversion therapy practices, practices aim to change an individual's sexual orientation to heterosexual, to change an individual's gender identity to cisgender, or to change their gender expression to match the sex they were assigned at birth. They harm and further stigmatize sexual and gender diverse persons and undermine their equality and dignity. They say later, these harmful practices also reinforce heteronormative and cis-normative ideas, as well as gender conformity on LGBTQ2 individuals. More succinctly, one in another article described it this way. Conversion therapy refers to efforts to try and change or suppress an individual's same-sex desires. So under the banner of conversion therapy which they see as a direct attack on an individual's very identity as a person, which is described in terms of their sexuality, they seek to legally silence any opposition. Now, at the very core of this concern is the reality that we live in an age in which selfhood and a person's identity is directly equated with their sexual preference. Why there is much related to the actual practice of conversion therapy that is opposed to biblical Christianity and that most Christians would themselves deny. In other words, sometimes conversion therapy uses shock therapy, drugs, and other rather bizarre or barbaric therapies to try to get someone to change from their homosexual desires. And Christians would disagree with that and oppose that as well. However, conversion therapy is being used in this political language, not merely to refer to those practices that are in themselves controversial and rejected by Christians for the most part, but rather to refer to or to encompass any, any statement, any position that says that to be a male and a female as you are anatomically defined is wrong. And to tell somebody that any identity that they have about their sexuality that does not conform to truth and reality or biblical Christianity is in fact wrong. And so they're using that again as a Trojan horse to silence by legal force any opposing view to the reigning ideology of the movement. And as I mentioned, as I just stated, at the base of this movement is the tightly held principle that a person's sexual identity is the essence of personhood. This identity is inherently a personal subjective experience that all must affirm and support as legitimate. Uh, if you look in that handout, here's a, a great way to capture that. 
Just to summarize a larger argument, this author notes that the inward turn that places the inner psychological life of the individual at the heart of what it means to be a self is well established by the end of the 19th century. In other words, personhood is individualized. The definition of what it means to be human. This was taken over by Freud and sexualized, he says here, that Freud provided a compelling rationale for putting sex and sexual expression at the center of human existence and all its related cultural and political components in a way that now grips the social imaginary of the Western world. You could think of social imaginary merely as being certain assumed truth that every culture uh, imbibes, whether they do it consciously or not, they even unconsciously. Uh, He goes on to say, Freud had, in fact, provided the West with a compelling myth. That myth is the idea that sex, in terms of sexual desire and sexual fulfillment, is the real key to human existence, to what it means to be human. From art to politics, sex is omnipresent. And thinking of human beings as fundamentally defined by their sexual desire is now virtually intuitive for us all. We are categorized as straight, gay, bi, queer, and so on, and sexual preferences once considered private and personal are now matters of public interest, means by which we are recognized by the world around us. And that captures where we are. At the core, it is an ultimate demonstration of what has sometimes been described as an expressive individualism that states the highest form of reality is an individual's personal experience. In other words, and this is key, the individual is not called to conform to any external, objective, transcendent truth or standard outside of themselves, but rather demands everything external must conform to that individual's personal sense of identity and selfhood. In other words, reality is completely contained within the individual. Of course, this on the face of it is a contradictory assertion, and it is the postmodern hypocrisy that states this, there is no absolute truth, except the one I just stated, (laughs) except the one I just told you. In other words, as much as you might try to deny reality, eventually you bump up against it. Now, the current situation is itself the consequence of a long series of ideas and thoughts that have influenced our culture. Really, you could be traced back to the Enlightenment. And at the core of the Enlightenment was the idea that external authority or religion was replaced with human autonomy. In other words, that truth is in me and in my own experience. It's attainable. It does not need some revealed truth, some revelation such as through the church, but it is inherent within humanity to come to a knowledge of the truth and so control and master their world. That's the basic idea of the Enlightenment and it opened the door to this kind of thinking. And again, as I noted, this was sexualized with Freud in terms of making sexual preference the ultimate end of human happiness and identity. And at least in the West and in the U.S., the marriage of feminism and the ideology of the sexual revolution in the 60s started us on a trajectory that we're experiencing today. Now, this conflict is at our doorstep, and it's inevitable We can't deny it, we can't ignore it, and we can't escape it. We are, as a church and as the people of God, being confronted with the option either to bow to the new morality or to face the wrath of whatever political power can be mustered.
So it is at our doorstep. And to just give an example of this, let me know two movements within the UK and within Canada. First in the UK. The Parliament recently supported a comprehensive ban on conversion therapy with the full support of Boris Johnson, the current Prime Minister, who stated that conversion therapy, quote, has no place in civilized society and has no place in this country. This was immediately challenged by many Christian groups and other religious groups, but primarily Christian groups, which necessitated a statement by Boris Johnson to assure them that their freedoms would not be dismissed. As a matter of fact, he said, quote, the criminalization would not extend to preaching, to family, to conversation, and to prayer. Consider that. The fact that he needed to give this reassurance shows how comprehensive the legislation is. He has to actually assure the citizens of the United Kingdom that prayer will not be outlawed and that conversation will not be outlawed. However, it is precisely the ban on even prayer that the government's LGBTQ advisory panel and others are fighting for. In an article in The Independent, a London publication written by Matthew Hindman, who identifies as gay and a survivor of conversion therapy and is co-founder of a group named Band Conversion Conversion Therapy, he made this argument. This is in your handout. Those who resist legislation against conversion therapy often resist the idea of a prayer or a pastoral conversation being subject to the scrutiny of law. However, if these things take place in an overwhelmingly homophobic and transphobic context, the pernicious power of prayer must be dealt with. The pernicious power of prayer. In an interview for Gay Times, Matthew Hindman broadened this sentiment to include every form of spiritual guidance on the matter. Quote, this is in your handout, when I hear spiritual guidance surrounding issues of sexual orientation or gender identity, alarm bells really start ringing. Spiritual guidance is really just religious speak for conversion therapy. Religious conversion therapy attempts are inherently coercive. What can be more threatening than telling someone they will spend an eternity in hell or be shunned by their entire community if they do not conform and change? In an article in a journal, the George Washington International Law Review, it came with this title, Praying for Torture Why the United Kingdom Should Ban, why the United Kingdom should ban Conversion Therapy. In stating what he sought to prove in his article, the author Christopher Romero states this, This note seeks to establish that knowingly practicing conversion therapy on an individual to change their sexual orientation from homosexual to heterosexual should be considered torture and cruel, inhumane or degrading treatment under international and United United Kingdom's domestic law. That's the argument. Be clear that those who support this law want no possible loophole for any religious exemption or opposition. They want nothing less than the absolute legal culpability for any opposition to the LGBTQ ideology. Another London publication, The Guardian, states this. Eighteen senior lawyers, academics, parliamentarians, and civil society leaders are signatories to the forum's Cooper Report, named after the human rights barrister Jonathan Cooper, who died suddenly earlier this month. It demands a broad definition of conversion practices to prevent loopholes, saying it should cover any practice that seeks to suppress, cure, or change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity. 
The report says it is vital that the definition implemented is sufficiently broad to effectively capture all forms these practices can take. Legislation must not allow any potential loopholes for individuals and institutions to continue continue undertaking conversion practices under a modified aim or false pretense. It also says that an exemption for religious practices would undermine prohibition. In other words, there can be no exceptions at all, period. And the language needs to be broad enough that it can include every single possible contingent possibility of any opposition whatsoever in any form. While similar legislation and arguments are being made in other countries, most recently Canada passed a bill that came into effect on January 7th, and it puts an almost identical ban into law. It's in law and effect now. From the Canadian website, this is in your handout. It states this, Diversity and inclusion are among Canada's greater strengths. Everyone should be able to live a true and authentic life, free from violence and discrimination, no matter who they are or who they love. Now, just as a footnote here, violence and harm are defined as feelings and subjective, if you'll catch that in some of this language. Not actual physical harm, not beating, not pulling out of the house, not those kind of things, but making someone feel that they are inauthentic to themselves. That's what's punishable. It goes on. The proposed legislation would also authorize courts to order the seizure of conversion therapy advertisements or to order their removal from computer systems or the internet. The practice can take various forms, including counseling and behavioral modification. That is to say, even in a private setting, that anyone's preferred gender or sexual identity or practices could be considered in any way wrong or not natural. Conversion therapy practices are discriminatory and have been proven, it goes on, and have been proven to be harmful to the physical, mental, and social well-being of the victim. That's the harm. It's mental, it makes them stressed out. Social makes them feel awkward and an outcast, somehow less than other people, and the sense of well-being of the victim. Even for adults who consented to it, criminal law reform is an important step in protecting the equality and dignity of LGBTQ2. Two stands for two spirits. You can look that up. Uh, Two persons, but more remains to be done. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau treated it as official. Our government's legislation banning the despicable and degrading practice of conversion therapy has received royal assent, meaning it is now law. So there it is. And what is over in the UK, which would be most similar to the United States, what is happening in Canada, is what the objective is for the same movement here in the United States. There is a direct then and explicit conflict that is increasingly coming to a showdown between the unrelenting and uncompromising ideology of the LGBTQ movement and Christian conviction. Others are caught up in it, but it's primarily Christian. However, it's not merely from the secular government. There is also support for this legislation among religious leaders. One said this, I think this is in your handout, David Walker, the Bishop of Manchester, has said faith leaders should face persecution if they failed to comply with a ban. Activity leading to prosecution should include prayer aimed at changing someone's sexual orientation, he told the Guardian in June. 
So to stand publicly as a Christian leader or any Christian speaker and to pray and for that matter even privately and to pray for someone to come to a biblical understanding of sexuality is now punishable by law. And don't miss the use of the word adults either. The intention of this is to extend even what parents are allowed to do in their own home and in instructing children. They are punishable by law after a certain age of even trying to teach their children a biblical sexuality. So those who stand on biblical conviction based on scripture are increasingly finding themselves in conflict not only with culture and those with political power, but also with those who came, claim Christian or religious authority. Of course, we know that they have abandoned the gospel, but nonetheless, at least in their identity. So that's the looming conflict. There it is. That's not, that's not uh, some theory. That's not some possibility. That's law that is actually in place in Canada. It is law that is uh, in the UK, and it again, as I said, in other countries as well. Secondly, second thought on this. The real issue is a question of authority. It's really a question of authority. The matter of authority has always been the crux of persecution for the church. The simple and yet profound conviction stated by the apostles in Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men, has always been the proverbial line in the sand that has brought conflict with the world under sin and in opposition to God. So it's nothing new. That's always the issue. It's always the line that cannot be crossed for a Christian is who is the authority? Who defines reality? Who tells us what is right to believe and what is wrong to believe and to do? Interestingly, and this is in your handout, I've mentioned this in the past, but one famous letter from Pliny, Pliny was a, a governor, a Roman governor in Bithynia. You might recognize that name from 1 Peter chapter 1 as part of a group that he was writing to, although this letter came later. But in a letter of Pliny, he's writing to the emperor to, to try to understand and figure out what to do with these Christians. His, this is an increasing problem, and he's not really sure what to do with them. And part of this letter, he says this, Meantime, this is the course that I have taken with those who were accused before me as Christians. I asked them whether they were Christians. And if they confess, I asked them a second and a third time with threats of punishment. If they kept to it, I ordered them for execution. For I held no question that whatever it was they admitted, in any case, obstinacy and unbending perversity deserved to be punished. He later said, as for those who said they neither were nor ever had been Christians, I thought it right to let them go, since they recited a prayer to the gods at my dictation, made supplication with incense and wine to your statue, which I had ordered to be brought into the court for the purpose together with the images of the god, gods, and moreover, cursed Christ. Things which, so it is said, those who are really Christians cannot be made to do. Later in that letter... There was an account of what Christian practices were, which were essentially meeting together, uh, agreeing to be good citizens, and offering worship to some God named Christ, they said. Some Jesus who they claimed to be a God. But the crux issue was this. Rome was a land of many gods and many religions and many faiths. That wasn't the issue. Christ could be added on to the pantheon of gods. 
The issue was this, is that whatever God was worshipped, the worship of that God by the individual of that group was subsumed under the ultimate authority of Caesar, of Rome. As long as that was acknowledged, hence offering incense or a prayer to the gods in general to say that what we believe is just our belief, it does not deny the other beliefs. As long as someone would do that, you could do whatever. You could go have your surfaces, you could do your things, you could meet as Christians and do whatever. As long as you gave that ultimate acknowledgement to the authority of the state, essentially. But that is something that Christians could not do. And even the Roman leaders recognized that. So Christians, otherwise good citizens, stood on this point. Only Christ is to be worshipped and ultimately obeyed. Many examples could be given, but one is Covenanters, Scottish Covenanters particularly. This was a group of Scottish Presbyterians who refused to yield to the power of the monarchy over the church in regulating worship, preaching, and prayer. They saw it as a usurping of Christ's singular role as head of the church and the final authority in the faith of all believers. This stand cost many of them their lives, their livelihood, their families, and subjected them to all manner of persecution, torture, and suffering. It was a matter of authority. Of authority. Who tells Christians what they are to believe and how they are to function as the church? They said only Christ, and so they died. Totalitarianism, a form of political power and control by definition a totalitarian form of or ideology of government and politics has to oppose any other competing source of authority we mentioned this briefly even in our introduction to the marriage class every totalitarian government stands in opposition to religion and christianity in particular go to any totalitarian government and see how christians are treated why because it's an issue of authority Submission to Christ as the ultimate authority stands in direct opposition to human authority and autocracy. And as a footnote, that is why essential to Marxism and that whole ideology in any totalitarian form of government, the family is a threat. Indeed, as an interesting connection is that sexual revolution and the idea of free love is an inherently and intentionally political form of destroying the family. So that the government could take over the role of the parents in educating, caring, and nurturing for them to conform them to their ideology. Sound familiar? What about culture? What about culture? Don't worry, we're going to get to some, we're going to look at some text here, but I'm setting the scene. Culture comes with an assumed sense of truth and reality as well. This was hinted at earlier. In a real sense, culture exercises a kind of authority over our thinking and translate ultimately into political action, policy, and laws. That was the idea of social imaginary. Art and media influence change in a culture's thinking by an appeal not to rational thought but to emotions and sentiment. It is not as important to think through an issue but to sh change how one feels about an issue. Feelings become the authority. This is why media has always played a key and intentional role in those who seek to bring about moral and political change. Always. Media tells a story. It conveys a message. It appeals to the motion. It shapes our moral reasoning. And it does so intentionally. 
The culture-shaping story of media is this. Your sexuality is inherent to your identity and essential to your living authentically. It is not defined by anything outside of you, nor does it have a greater purpose than the satisfaction and sense of wholeness that it brings to you. To say anything else is to deny you as a person and deny you the joy of authenticity and dignity causing real harm. That's the ideology behind the laws. You heard it in the Canadian explanation. To make someone conform to a gender that they do not personally identify with is to destroy that person's dignity. It is to cause them harm. In the case of that title of that one article, it is like torture. So it's really an issue of authority. It's an issue of authority. Who says and who gets to declare what is true? Who gets to declare what is true? And really, this battle of authority then is not new. And as Christians, we understand this. It began in the garden. The confrontation with Satan was a conflict between two competing authorities. Now, initially, we would identify that as God's authority and the serpent's authority. The serpent is the one who came to Eve in Genesis 3. And he says, did God say that you shall not eat from any tree? The fruit of any tree in the garden. He says, You surely will not die when the woman said that God told us you will die if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You surely will not die. And then he says, God knows, in fact, that when you eat of that tree, you will be like him. You will be equal to him. Now, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, interestingly, looked like any other tree in the garden and seemed to serve the same basic functions of delight and providing for food. But it was forbidden by God. Its main function was primarily to demonstrate the faithful obedience of Adam and Eve. But here's what I want to know. Satan did not command them to do anything. He didn't command them to do anything. God had given a command. Satan didn't give a command. He made a reasoned argument to change their thinking about God. And this becomes important. He appealed finally to her sense of autonomy and individuality apart from God. He made her the final authority. And so really, those are the two competing authorities. Yes, Satan was an influencer, but the real authority was, does Eve get to make that decision, or is her life to be totally submitted to God and his command? And the same with Adam. That was the real issue. Autonomy. Autonomy. So culture and media under the influence of Satan makes the truth of sexuality defined by God irrelevant, evil, or oppressive, and says that you have the choice to break free from the oppression of tradition, of church, of culture, and of family, and to branch out to your own self-expression to define, to find true happiness, authenticity, and meaning in life. So there are two competing paths, really, when we come to this issue of sexuality. Two competing sources of truth, two centers of authority. God's authority in his word, or with us, and his individuals. And this is, again, always the issue. God's authority is the frustration of fallen men. Psalm 2 says this, man wants to cast his fetters from us. Get out from under the bonds of his authority. This anticipates the conflict of authority that Jesus would have with the Jewish leaders as they constantly asked him, by what authority do you do these things? When they wanted to paint Christ as a threat 
to the political system, they brought him before Pilate and they gave this accusation. If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. In other words, if you do not crucify this rebel, then he's who is claiming an authority that opposes Caesar, then you yourself become an accomplice to his desire to usurp the Roman government. Therefore, you should kill him. And so the conflict continues on. So here, what does that have to do with us? The church stands then on the authority of God's word, which is to stand on God, the truth of God himself. The nature of scripture is bound to the nature of God. Scripture is the authoritative statement of reality. It is invested with God's authority because it is bound to God's nature. It bears the attributes of truth, holiness, sufficiency, and authority. Psalm 138.2 says this, making this as an explicit statement. Psalm 138.2, he says, Psalmist does, I will bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth for you have magnified your word according to all of your name is equal to your glory is equal to your person. It is for this reason that God's word is described as a double edged sword that comes from the mouth of Christ. Listen to Jeremiah 23, 29. He says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer which shatters a rock? He says later in Jeremiah 44, This will be the sign to you, declares the Lord, that I am going to punish you in this place, so that you may know that my words will surely stand against you for harm. So here's the simple question then for the church is, How do we define and think about biblical sexuality, gender, God's purpose for it, how it is to be rightly exercised and experienced. We as the church define human humanity, human sexuality, and reality itself by the eternal and authoritative and objective word of God. And if everyone in the culture goes against it, then we would say with Paul, rather let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. And the church is increasingly having to find herself saying that very thing. Through every government system, through every institution, through every company, and even some who identify as Christians themselves say that it is wrong, we say, no, you are wrong, God is true. You are a liar and God is not. So when we address these issues, we have to understand that we have one source of authority. Thirdly, we need to understand it is a spiritual battle. It's a battle for truth and for the souls of men. Male and female. It's a battle of darkness and light, truth and lies, God and the devil. That's where the real issue is. Satan is the God of this world. He is the spirit of Antichrist. He has a temporary authority under the sovereign hand of God. And the nature of Satan's deception is to distort and deform what are otherwise inherently good aspects of creation and humans as, humans as God's image bearers. Now, the battle has an earthly manifestation in law and profit uh, policies, but these are temporary and secondary. The real issue is the truth and the gospel of truth. This is the responsibility of the church, who is the only voice for God on the earth. The church is the light of the world. There is no other source of truth other than from the church. She alone holds to Scripture as inspired and revealed and given by God. She is alone the one who proclaims that word and that truth. And she is the only one that can confront the error and the lies of Satan in the world. 
This means that while we understand that voting and taking responsibility, responsible measures as citizens is important, we do not in any way perceive that that as our ultimate weapon and means of producing change. And that is important for us to understand. Let me just remind you of some familiar passages. Paul says to the Ephesians in chapter 6, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of the might, His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. It's an interesting term there, schemes. We get the idea of method from it. It is an intentional, purposeful deception by Satan. Just as a footnote, he uses that same term over in chapter 4. When he talks about the schemes of men, he said, As a result, we're no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, of craftiness and deceitful scheming. Same term. In other words, the scheming of Satan is worked out through the culture and through unregenerate men to confuse the truth and to promote a lie. In place of the truth of God. And so he says, finally be strong in the Lord. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. That is to say that our real enemy is not Justin Trudeau, Boris Johnson, Michael Hindman. Those are not the enemy. The ideology and the lies being promoted through them is what we oppose. That is the enemy to the souls of men. It is a spiritual battle. Paul said this, just one other text quickly. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, you're familiar with these words, he says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is the church's responsibility. That is our responsibility to speak the truth unashamedly. Yes, with all the complexities of arguments, the truth has one simple message, and it's this. God created us male and female in His image. God established that male and female would enjoy and experience their sexuality in an exclusive, permanent, lifelong covenant of marriage, which has as its end not only an affirmation of their covenant, but the production of children and the establishment of a family unit for the stability of society. That's simple. And that is the church's message. Now, what are these strongholds? One described them as they are systems, schemes, structures, and strategies that Satan exercises to frustrate and obstruct the progress of Christ's gospels. What are these strongholds? They are bans on conversion therapy that deny the church the right to counsel according to biblical truth. That's what they are. They are cultural pressure to silence the church, to tell them that they are unloving and unkind to call those who have distorted sexual desires, whether they be same-sex or opposite-sex desires, that God has established how we are to live out our sexuality. What are the weapons that we have as the church? Well, as already noted, we have truth, we have scripture, we have prayer, and we have holy lives. Those are our weapons. 
Do you see that as the weapons of the church by and large? Some. Unfortunately, not many. Our main attack is not through political movements, though we must vote and be good citizens. Our main attack is to be faithful to the gospel, to proclaim the truth, to live it out in our lives, and to pray. It means at least three things. One, people are not our enemies, but lies and ideologies are our enemy. People are not our enemies. It's a, it's a common statement, but it's one that has a lot of truth that we'd be well to remember. People are not our enemies. They are the mission field. They are enslaved by the evil one, the same as we were. They are those who need the truth and the message of Christ to be saved. They are not our enemies, people, but the lies and the ideologies. Yes, they come through people, and that means that an individual promoting those needs to be confronted in his argument, but ultimately with a hope and a desire that he would come to faith or she would come to faith in Christ. Secondly, it means this. We must not rely on our own strength and strategies, but on God. How do we demonstrate that? By prayer. By prayer. By demonstrating Christ's character and putting on the armor of God. And we demonstrate this truth that it's a spiritual battle when we focus not on political movements, not on secular arguments and any of those kind of things. Though each of those have their place in some way. But all of them are infinitely subsumed and distant from the singular priority that we have as the church, which is to preach the gospel we read this morning, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So the real problem is not to be more broad and specific, is not simply distorted sexuality. It is the distorted curse of sin on humanity. It's not merely that we have disordered sexual desires. We fall into the trap of the ideology of the LGBTQ movement itself if we make that the singular issue. Yes, we have to address it as it comes to our doorstep. But the message of the church is this, that men are fallen completely, totally, Mind, will, emotions, at every part, we are in hostility and stand in opposition to God under the curse of sin. It's not merely sexuality. That is just one expression. We are at hostility with God. That is the doctrine of total depravity. As some of you are familiar with, it does not mean that we are as bad as we could be. It means that every part of our being, every part of our personhood, every part that defines us as being made in the image of God has been corrupted by sin. It's total in all of our parts. We all, whether you're Michael Hindman or the little neighbor across the street who is unbelieving, and all of us before we came to Christ... We all fall under this indictment. There is none righteous, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's everyone. That's everyone. That's everyone, not just the sexually immoral and not those with same-sex attraction. So the real issue of the church and of the gospel is this. It's not about a message of being heterosexual or even just sexually pure or even monogamous. It is about being reconciled to God through Christ, through the gospel, in the totality of our persons. It's holiness, not simply heterosexuality, that is the issue. 
In other words, our message is about sin, salvation, and sanctification, and we must not lose sight of that goal, that it's about sin and salvation. This is the message of the church. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But such were some of you. And but you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. That's the message that we have. So Christians believe in conversion, but not through a therapy or program, but through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is our message. One defined conversion in this way. This is in your notes if you want to look at it. Briefly, conversion may be defined as the conscious act of a regenerate person in which he or she turns to God in repentance and faith. It involves a twofold turning away from sin and toward God. One said this, we understand that in a biblical understanding of conversion, a Christian being a new creature in Christ, the indwelling Holy Spirit being united to Christ, and of course the doctrine of sanctification, we come to understand that therapy can't actually touch any of that. The most basic transformational power is the power of the gospel, the power of the indwelling Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of the preaching of the word of God. Or we could say it like Paul did to the Thessalonians, after noting that our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, he said how you turned from idols to serve the living and the true God. It's repentance from sin. It's not merely the repentance from sinful sexual expression. It's repentance from lying. It's repentance from jealousy, from covetousness, from greed. Go down the list. It's repentance from sin, from sin. And that is the message of the church. Yes, it has to be directly applied to sexuality because that's at our doorstep, but we must always be sure to make clear that one is not a sinner because they have distorted sexual desires. They are a sinner because the entirety of their being is at opposition to the God who created them, and reconciliation comes through Christ. So in contrast to contemporary culture, which defines the person almost exclusively in relation to sexual identity, the gospel identifies us as God's image bearers who have been ruined by sin or in need of becoming a new creature in Christ. Christopher Yawn in his book Holy Sexuality. Now, Christopher Yawn's interesting. He actually is, uh, he lived his life as a gay man for years. Uh, he came wonderfully to Christ and now teaches out at Moody. Uh, he is single and celibate because even as a Christian, his besetting sin is a struggle with same-sex attraction. And he realizes that he simply is not attracted to women, but that his call is not to be married. His call is to be holy like Christ. That's the issue. So he doesn't define himself as a gay Christian, and nobody should define themselves as a gay Christian. He is a Christian who has a particular set of struggles that he seeks to bring under the lordship of Christ. And so he says this, and that's his argument in his book, Holy Sexuality. And at the end of the day, our, he, quote, at the end of the day, our sexuality is not the biggest issue. The biggest issue for all of us, same-sex attracted, opposite-sex attracted, or both, is whether we're truly following Christ or not. Following Jesus is the goal. Our destination must be Christ. That's the goal, sanctification, to be like Christ. For some, 
that means God does change and affect their desires. And some have wonderful marriages, some don't. That's secondary to the issue. The issue is knowing Christ, loving Him, and serving Him. Finally then, number fifth, I would just this thought. It's a time then to speak. It's a time to speak. The church is tasked to speak the truth because it is the truth. It's that simple. <laughs> what other message do we have? When Jesus said, do you not also want to turn away from me? And you remember what Peter said? Where are we going to go? You have the words of truth. I don't have any other option. Yes, that's a hard saying, eating and drinking flesh and blood and all of that. Yeah, I don't understand everything, but where else are we going to go? And so the church needs to have that conviction. We speak it simply because it's the truth. Because it's God's word. And because it's the true path to human flourishing. And because it alone leads to the knowledge of God in Christ. And that means, increasingly so, that we're going to speak to a culture that is hostile to the truth. But listen to this encouragement. You might say, what an encouragement this is. But it is an encouragement. Listen to when God called the prophet Ezekiel to his ministry. Listen to to how he describes it to him. In Ezekiel chapter 2, he said, Then he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I'm sending you to them who are stubborn and obstinate children. And you will say to them, Thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words, though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions. Neither fear their words nor be dismayed at their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are rebellious." That's the message of the church. The issue isn't whether the culture listens, although we should say things winsomely, we should say things intelligently, we should say things in a way that's meant to be persuasive. Absolutely, we should say it with gentleness, we should say it with boldness, we should say it with all of those things. But at the end of the day, the issue isn't whether they will listen, for indeed they will not, and increasingly so. Although some may be rescued from the fire, many will not. But we are tasked, like Ezekiel, to speak even to a stubborn and an obstinate nation. Even though they will not listen, they will know at some point that God is among them. We are to speak the truth and hope that God will save some. So even though we know there will be opposition, we are nonetheless to speak. How will they hear without a preacher, Paul said? And even in some sense, more importantly, we are to speak in a way and against a culture that we can say with a clear conscience when we stand before the risen Christ that we have been faithful. We have been faithful to the task that he's given to us. Let me end with this here in 2 Timothy. Now, in 2 Timothy, he's writing, when he says this in chapter 3, he's actually explaining what is going to be the character of the church as this age progresses towards the end. And he says this, but realize this, 
that in the last days difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And here it is, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. How have they denied its power? They've denied its saving and its sanctifying power. They have a form of religion with no spiritual reality. And in that context, he tells them and assures them that all scripture, however, is given by God. And that is the sole means of how God accomplishes his work, making the man of God equipped for every good work. And he says that is the sole message and authority that you are to preach. And so he says this in chapter four, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, i.e. the one with authority. And by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, who will affirm their gender identity, who will affirm their same-sex attraction, who will acknowledge marriage is bound only by the sincere love that two individuals have for one another, regardless of how they practice it sexually. We want a church that will tell us that. That will tell us you don't need to confirm, conform to anything outside of that. You need to be true and authentic to who you are. That's God's will for your life. Paul says, in opposition to that, you're not to go down that road, but you are to speak the truth in love. And he says in verse 5, but you, you, in contrast to that, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And so how do we fight the tides of the culture? How do we fight the mounting persecution that is aimed directly at the truth of God and at the gospel? How do we persevere and we stay firm? How do we not cower before the threats of a world that stands in mocking opposition to the gospel? Well... We look to what in the future is laid up for us, and that is the crown of righteousness. We look to him who endured such hostility by sinners, but for the joy set before him endured the cross. We look to him who has redeemed our souls, who has called us from eternity past and set his love on all of those who belong to him and will assuredly bring it about in their glorification. Your glorification, my glorification. And it is in that that we are to seek to stay faithful to the end. So that is the encouragement. We have to understand that there is a looming conflict and it's primarily going to take the, the ideology of the LGBTQ movement, the sexual revolution. 
We have to understand that this is, in fact, an issue of authority. We stand on the authority of Christ and on the authority of his word. We have to understand that it is a spiritual battle. It is not about people and political movements. It is about Satan and God. It is about the truth of the gospel against the liar. We have to understand that the message is about sin and salvation, not merely about sexuality. It is about us as fallen human beings who need to be reconciled in Christ, all of us, and made like him in his image. And we have to understand that it is a time for the church to speak and not to unwaver on the truth of the gospel and of Christ. And so with that, let me pray and then... And then prepare. We're going to bring Elias and Angelise up. So uh, y'all be ready to come up. We're going to pray for you again afterwards. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the confidence to stand against all that opposes your word. But we realize this is not from our will. It's not by strength of personality. It's not by our own ability to muster up the strength to stand firm, it is by your Spirit who has called us into union with Christ, your Spirit who indwells in all who belong to you, your Spirit who enables us to love the truth and be bound to it in our conscience, the Spirit who unfolds for us the glories that are to come and helps us to realize that whatever is lost in this world pales in comparison infinitely so. It is you that do these things in us. It is your spirit that enables us not to be timid. And Lord, forgive us. And if we would be, help us to rely on you and not ourselves and turn back and to see our faithful Christ who stood before the leaders of Israel who were falsely accusing him, who stood before Pilate who did not understand him, who hung on a cross while being mocked, knowing that God was accomplishing his purposes and nothing could change that. And that included, O oh Christ, your dying for us, your rising for us. But what a glorious truth we now have to know that you did rise from the grave. You did accomplish salvation. You did ascend to the right hand of the Father where you are right now. You are returning to judge the living and the dead. And you have given us your word to speak to the world so that you could call, accomplish your purposes. And call to faith and union to you all whom you have loved and Father you have loved before the foundation of the world. So let us say as Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.10 that we endure all things for the sake of the elect. That we would not cower and hide in any way the truth of the gospel. Enable us to be faithful so that we could say with him as well that I have finished the faith. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And I know that there is laid up for me when we see you, Christ, finally, face to face, a crown of righteousness that you will award. And it's part of the crowns and part of that glorious time that we will gladly take whatever, whatever you give and lay it back down at your feet and acknowledge it's from you, through you, and to you. So we pray, Lord, keep us faithful. And any who do not know you, and we pray, Lord, not merely for us, but for your church. We pray for those pastors and those Christians in Canada that they would stand firm. We pray for the ones in the UK. We pray for the ones in Scotland and many other places in Australia and Germany and around the world and those who aren't even facing the persecution of the LGBTQ but merely a totalitarian government in North Korea, in China, in Cuba and around the world. We pray for your church to stand strong, to stay faithful in the power of the Spirit and on the sufficiency and authority of your word. Bless our brethren.
And we pray these things in the matchless name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.